Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Christine Lamberson, and I'll be your host for today for this channel. Today, we're talking to Max Felker Cantor, um, who is an assistant professor at Ball State University. And we are speaking to him today about his new book, Policing Los Angeles, Race, Resistance, and the Rise of the LAPD, that has come out in 2018 from the University of North Carolina Press. Hi, Max. Hi, Christine. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. I'm excited to talk to you about your book. Me too. Uh, to, to get started, can you just tell us a little bit about how you got interested in being a historian and in this topic in particular? Yeah, so it's a really interesting question um, that could go back you know, all the way to undergrad and college of why I got so interested in history, uh, taking classes. Um, in history as an undergraduate and really being confronted with questions of historical interpretation and how historical interpretation could change over time uh, based on present questions. And that history was really all contingent on the questions we asked based on the present really got me interested in becoming a historian and going to graduate school. And part of that process then was also the kind of thrill of archival discovery, which I'm sure will come into my discussion of the book as well, is that I just got so fascinated by thinking about how history was made by going into archives and finding sources and then putting together a narrative out of what I found. It was just kind of a light bulb went on um, when I started to do that, both as an undergrad and then, of course, in graduate school in much more depth. And so that is kind of how I started thinking about why I became a historian and what really got me interested in it. Um, And to the second part of that question about why I got interested in policing, and I see myself as a historian of both policing, but also of the larger kind of turn in the carceral state, is I was in graduate school from beginning in 2008. And I was in Los Angeles, which partially explains why I was interested in writing about Los Angeles, kind of fascinated with the city around me and the racial politics of that city, but also the timing of graduate school of when I was starting my dissertation and thinking about my dissertation was a moment in scholarship when the uh, attention to the history of mass incarceration was becoming much more um, a topic of study and of much more interest to historians, especially in the post-World War II period. And so I was thinking about those questions from a scholarly point of view that I just um, wanted to ask about Los Angeles. And alongside that, I was really, had been engaged in archival work in Los Angeles through graduate school and had encountered a number of collections and sources, in particular at the Southern California Library, 
which is a community library that holds records of activists and community organizations um, from Los Angeles. And I encountered a whole range of source material on activism and anti-police abuse activism in Los Angeles from the 1960s all the way to the present. And so it was through that archival discovery as well, as I was rooting around, that I started to bring in questions about, well, how should we see the police in LA history and anti-police activism in particular was what really got me going on that topic to begin with, was this piece on activism. Um, And in particular, I'm sure we'll talk about the Coalition Against Police Abuse later or CAPA, but that was the collection that got me kind of really into this project. And then I'd say a third part, of course, that got me kind of interested in this topic in particular was also the particular historical moment of 2008-2010 when there was a kind of growing societal concern around mass incarceration right on the cusp of the Black Lives Matter movement. And so I was inspired to ask new questions of the past based on my present experience as well. So those three things really all came together kind of at one moment, both a historiographic change, my own experience in a city with archives, as well as new questions about about the past based on my present uh, situation and the present situation of policing in the United States in the 21st century. Okay. So I do want to talk more about those activists. And I also later on want to talk a little bit more about now that you've done all this research, how it kind of fits into our present moment. But before we do that and talk more about uh, your book in a bit more detail, I was wondering if you might, for listeners who maybe haven't been following recent history and recent activism quite as much, if you might just give us a, a the quick version of the arc of policing and the policing changes that you're talking about here. So your book goes from the Watts riots to um, the LA riots in the 90s. So that sort of 40 year period, or perhaps more broadly, essentially the last 50, 60 years, if you might kind of just give us that broad overview of sort of what's happening in policing in urban um, spaces in the United States in general. Yeah, I mean, in general, in Los Angeles, as I suggest, is one is can, can be kind of seen as a model for this. But in general, policing through the 1950s and into the 1960s, by and large, is undergoing a process of professionalization. So police officers in many cities are starting to be paid more they're starting to be seen as uh, a prof- professional organizations. That's part of an effort to get rid of corruption in police forces that had been, you know, that police forces had been corrupt and on the take in the 1920s, 30s, and urban machine politics in the kind of early 20th century. So in the 1950s, there's these movements to professionalize and reform and to say that the police are not corrupt and that they're, you know, the kind of professional crime fighters that we see in kind of the old movies. So this is the, if anyone knows, it's Dragnet, um, which is a LA TV series from the 1950s, um, which I don't write about, but that's the kind of iconic professional policeman. Um, And so there's this moment of professionalization, but in by and large, it's also um, shaped by racial segregation in cities as well. So those police forces in this moment 
are often seen as really enforcers of uh, racial segregation as well. And so the so African American communities by and large don't get the same type of policing in the 1950s and 1960s as white communities. And so there's responses to to police policing that is seen as discriminatory and as many activists would say they were occupied that their communities were occupied by the police. And so that pushes forward really demands for the police to change. And so you get all sorts of calls in the 60s and into the 70s for police forces to have more diversity in the people they hire. So hire more diverse police forces to solve some of the discrimination and that was seen in policing, uh, more community relations programs, more human relations trainings. Um, and so there's the so there's moments in the 60s and 70s to reform the police to try to make them more reflective, so to speak, of communities and more responsive to community desires. That transforms again in the 1980s and into the 1990s with the rise of what is called broken windows policing and new attention to low-level crimes and communities. And this is the kind of stop and frisk policing that people may have heard about that starts, you know, in by and large, this moment is in New York City under Chief William Bratton and others, where they say, we're going to crack down on low-level offenses to stop crime, um, bigger or uh, higher order crimes. And so there's a transition there where you get a new form of policing in terms of really involved in the daily life of communities. And of course, that all plays out on a racially discriminatory or racially segregated landscape. Alongside of that, there's a whole trajectory in this period of what we might call police militarization. And so the police from the 60s forward um, are, are getting more militarized in the sense of they're getting funding to buy things like anti-riot gear, um, SWAT teams, and those sorts of things that we also associate with the war on drugs in the 1980s. And so the police are undergoing these multiple transformations between the 60s and the 90s. Um, on a, on a, a variety of levels, whether whether it's um, their their political organization and shifts from professional to these professional police forces, and it, as well as militarization and how they're policing, um, as and then in the kind of uh, strategies they use when they start to say we're gonna now move from kind of these. Uh, reactive police forces to proactive police forces with broken windows saying we're going to go out and find crimes and try to prevent them before they happen. And so so policing is going through kind of major transformations in all those ways. And so you touched on this just a little bit in your answer already, but could you talk a bit more about why Los Angeles is a particularly good place to be thinking about some of the questions that you're thinking about in your book? And of course, you're talking about some very um, LA specific events, including those two bookends for your book, but um, you're you're also certainly making an argument that um, Los Angeles tells us something about the United States as a whole. So, could you talk just a little bit about that relationship? Yeah, and the way I kind of talk about this in the book, and the, the reason why Los Angeles becomes kind of a, a model for the rest of the nation is that the LAPD or the Los Angeles Police Department 
was oftentimes on the front lines or on the um, front of the innovations of many of these changes in policing. So they become a model for other departments around the country. So the LAPD is one of the first to really say, we're going to professionalize um, in the 1950s and in the 1960s under Chief William Parker. And so they start to institute a lot of those um, professionalization um, policies as well um, that makes them kind of on the forefront of changes in policing. They are also on the forefront of developing new strategies and tactics. So the first SWAT team, for example, um, comes out of Los Angeles um, after, after the Watts uprising. And so in, in, in 1967 and 1968. Um, and so they're on the forefront of using technology. And so there's a whole thing of using computers in the 1970s um, in, in LA to, to help police um, to, to, to be more efficient. And so, so Los Angeles becomes, and the LAPD in particular, becomes a kind of really model department that is also being exported to other departments across the country, um, which makes it a really interesting place to look, both for some of the origins, but also just as it's constantly working um, to reinvent itself over time. Um, The other thing that makes it really interesting um, in terms of a model for the nation, especially in northern cities, is that Los Angeles has a black mayor, and a number of northern cities have black mayors. And so Los Angeles becomes a kind of interesting model there to think about black mayoral power um, in, a, in an era when there's a lot of black politics. Um, and of course, the other thing which I talk about in the book is that Los Angeles is this really multiracial city, really, for the whole time I'm, that I write about. So it's, it's a multiracial city in the 1960s. It has a big black population. The Mexican-American and Mexican population in the 60s is a large one. It undergoes um, dramatic demographic shifts with immigration in the 1970s and 80s, both from, from Asia, but also from Central and South America. And so Los Angeles... And some people make the argument California as well, you know, is on the forefront of demographic changes that we're seeing in the country more broadly um, later on as well. So Los Angeles provides a model to think about how police interact with a city that is becoming more multiracial and dealing with questions of immigration um, in a way that other cities then have to deal with as well, um, but on slightly different timelines, perhaps. And so in all those ways, Los Angeles can become a really interesting and um, place to look at policing, but also can help us think about policing more broadly um, across the country during this period um, that I'm talking about in the late 20th century. I don't want to walk through every single piece of your book. I hope that listeners will read it and um, learn more after our conversation. But I think it makes sense to still start with the place that you start to talk a little bit about uh, or to set up the types of reforms, changes, and activism that your book is tracing throughout this period. So what happens with the Watts riot, and not, I don't just mean you know what was the Watts riot, but more precisely, how do people in Los Angeles interpret and respond to this event in different ways, right? And and 
of course, I just called it a riot, as it's often known, and you called it an uprising. And uh, that difference, in some ways, highlights some of the differing interpretation by itself. But could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. And so the the start of the book is with, is by and large, it's with Watts in 1965, um, in August, when the city uh, goes up in what I call an anti-police protest from the African-American community in response to a black motorist being pulled over, arrested, and rumors of police brutality um, spread throughout the black community. And this comes along on a long history of police um, discriminatory policing and tension with the black community, which I won't go into here, but is part of the book about the backdrop that leads to this moment of tension. But coming out of this moment of a violent anti-police protest for six days, there's multiple ways that the city responds and different constituencies in the city respond. So from the African-American community, I I presented and argue that it's it's really this um, political protest that is demonstrating the real discontent with how their community has been policed. Um, and of course, this is coming within the context of larger social and economic inequalities. I don't want to downplay that. But with my focus is saying that actually, we really need to understand the real um, discontent and dislike of the police and the way that the black community has been policed in this era of the 1960s um, to understand Watts. And so they come out coming out of that is we really need some fundamental changes to how the police act in black communities. And so that's where I use this kind of moment of uprising as a political response um, without getting too much into um, the word choices and the politics behind that, because I've also recently read some new, some new pieces on maybe riots is a better discussion actually to describe that those events because they show the real rage um, at, at at policing and so that I'll, I'm not going to get too much into that but the black community is is expressing a real animosity towards the police and calling for reform but at the same time coming out of watts the police and they're still under the command of William Parker he dies in 1966 so there's a shift of leadership but under William Parker and in this moment in 65, the police receive overwhelming support from the white community coming out of this unrest. And so Chief Parker gets like thousands of letters that say, we appreciate the way you handled this uprising or this riot, as it would have been called. And we think that you are basically an upstanding police department and you keep our communities safe. And so the police are getting criticized from the black community, but at the same time, the white community, um, and this is a largely segregated city at the time, is, is praise, are praising the police. And so you get a different interpretation there of what this event meant. And what I argue is the, the context of that is what allows the police coming out of Watts to say, we need more authority and we need more resources. To, to make sure that, there, that no more riots occur in the city. Um, and the other thing that comes out of this is that, by and large, politicians are supporting the police as well, coming out of the, the Watts unrest. And 
in particular, the McCone Commission, which is set up by the governor to investigate the, the Watts riot, as they called it, that commission comes out and says, by and large, we think William Parker and the LAPD are doing a good job across the city and that they are, um, ref- they, they, they are an efficient police force that respects everyone, um, which of course is not what the black community had been saying. And so the McCone Commission's um, ideas of reform are very limited. It's they, and so they propose reforms such as, well, we should hire, the department should hire more black police officers because the number of black police officers on the force in 1965 is not reflective of the proportion of black, of black people in the city. Uh, we need more community relations programming. So we should, so we'll, the department should invest in, in community relations sorts of um, activities. And then there's some minor things like they say, well, they should hire a new inspector to deal with complaints that come into the department. Um, but none of those reforms really address the roots of the real um, uh, discontent with the police in the African-American community about the police aren't actually held accountable when they abuse or in times kill African-American residents. Um, that they that there's no discipline that the chief of police still um, has the power has the kind of ultimate authority over discipline in the department that the chief of police still has basically life tenure because they had civil service protection and so and there's no civilian input over um, discipline so there's demands for things like civilian review boards which don't go anywhere because the police and the McCone Commission and city politicians don't see it as, a, as necessary. Um, and then there are some politicians to kind of add to this African-American politicians and council members in particular, Tom Bradley being one of them, who are saying, we do need to make some changes to the police department, but they're not taking the kind of bigger steps to say, let's like restructure the whole thing. And so you get these multiple strands of proposals and demands that come out of that Watts moment, um, which I suggest is kind of activists saying we need a lot more movement and the police on the other hand saying, actually what we need coming out of Watts is more authority and more independence. So how does this play out? And I mean, when it, of, of course, we know, of course, that the, there aren't the types of massive change that many of the activists were hoping um, to get. Uh, but you are making an argument that their activism still very much matters and that they are in many ways reimagining the potential relationship between um, the police and communities. And so could you talk just a little bit about um, their activism and and how what, what kinds of changes they are making, even if it's not the sort of thing they're hoping for? Yeah, and so that's a really great question. And so what you start to see after Watts is that you have African-American activists starting to form new organizations. So in particular, the one that comes right after, or in 1966, after a real tragic killing of an African-American motorist who is taking his wife to the hospital when um, because she was pregnant and going to have their child um, in 1966, is African-American activists form uh, what they called a community alert patrol. 
And so what they start to do is they form an act, a, a group that says, if, if no one's going to watch over the police, we will. And so they organize into um, a group that then would go out at night in cars where they would then just follow the police and they would observe arrests and try to show that they are that the police were being watched to try to um, ensure some form of fairness and accountability. And so there's that kind of moment. And that um, community alert patrol becomes a similar model that would be taken on by the Black Panthers, both in Los Angeles, but also in Oakland, where you'd get you know, this idea of community community control of the police in a sense of we're going to come watch you and really try to say, let's bring accountability. And the community alert patrol is one of the first examples of that. You also have other groups, as I mentioned, like the Black Panthers forming. So within the Black Power era, you have organizations starting to develop that are using things like mass protest tactics where they're confronting the police, they're, they're um, going into the city council building um, and testifying at hearings after um, poli- episodes of police abuse where they're trying to pressure the city council to, to make changes um, in, the, in the police, in the, in the nature of policing in the city. There are um, efforts, there are some efforts to try to organize campaigns to create a civilian review board in the city. Now, it's not successful, um, but what it leads to is a growing commitment within the community to try to hold the police accountable. And so, what it, and it also leads the AC, to the ACLU forming police complaint malpractice centers. So, they create these offices where community members can come and give reports and complaints of police abuse. Um, so that it provided an avenue when people didn't think that if they went to the police department that their complaints would be heard. And so some of this activism actually leads to alternative ways that the community, um, African-American community and Mexican-American community is doing this as well, where they find ways to say, we'll find avenues to voice our complaints and try to hold the police accountable, whether that's following the police, whether that's you know collecting our own complaints in these malpractice complaint centers. Um, the Mexican American community is holding. There's an organization that forms called the Barrio Defense Committee, and it's led by a lot of Mexican American women, where they're organizing the community um, in East Los Angeles, primarily um, in response to the discriminatory treatment of Mexican-American youth, um, as well as the kind of a number of killings and abuses in county jail. So they're organizing around that and bringing communities together to try to bring justice um, to to the police in those instances as well. And so it's this real grassroots effort to put pressure on the police in these moments. And the argument I make in the book, which you allude to, is that these movements are really important for essentially putting the police on notice that there's really pressure on them. And of course, this continues into the 70s, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, And that what the argument of the book is that this all lays the groundwork for this activism lays the groundwork for larger changes to come in the future. 
is that we don't get bigger reforms because some bigger reforms come later in time. But these are small steps that activists um, use that then create a momentum momentum against the police um, within African-American and Mexican-American communities in this moment um, that may not have changed everything in 1966, but by 1970, 1975, they're starting to see greater changes in police policies. Can we talk a little bit about the 70s? And in particular, I want to talk about um, once Bradley becomes mayor, um, in in particular, the politics of having liberal law and order, basically, of having this new mayor who is pursuing more reform than some past officials have, uh, but again, nonetheless, not necessarily fundamentally changing the relationship between the police and the people. Right. And so Tom Bradley is an African, was an African-American man who was mayor of Los Angeles. He's elected in 1973. Um, he's there up through 1992. So he's elected to five terms. He's there for 20 years. Um, and his backstory is important because he was a 21-year veteran of the Los Angeles Police Department. So he had been a police officer before he enters politics. Um, and so he always has you know, one of the arguments I make is that we still, we, we have to understand his perspective as one of being a police officer, but also someone coming out of the black community that is really saying, we can't have the, the police acting in a discriminatory fashion. And so when he's elected, he's promoting, well, we can have law and order, we can have a safe city. Um, and part of that's electoral pressure to get elected because the city's only about 19% black when he's elected. So he has to appeal to white voters. Um, so there's part of that that he's responding to. But I also argue that his vision of what we might call liberal law and order and policing is one that really the problem is not the kind of fundamental power the police have, but it's just that they need to be regulated and overseen in a way so they apply the law fairly and so that we can have safe communities and everyone can have efficient and good policing as long as the police do that in a fair and even-handed manner. And so what that allows, I argue, is that then it enables him to release the police in their kind of authority to maintain order in the city at the while... Ironically, they so they gain power at the same time that he says, but we're going to create kind of a more fair system. And so this leads to a whole range of things where he um, eventually they change, like we're going to, they change the officer involved shooting policies and force the LAPD to have new sorts of policies and when you can use force and pressure on the LAPD to diversify more. So they do start to hire more African-American officers um, in the 70s and into the 80s. And so Bradley is this interesting figure because he, I think, is a proponent of we're going to have a safe city, but his policies that say actually enable the police to actually expand their resources and authority in the city um, because he's just saying, well, we'll just apply the law fairly to everyone without really a change to the structure of policing that was already operating on these kind of unequal bases. And so he becomes, that's the kind of moment um, where we get 
both liberals and conservatives promoting law and order under the Bradley administration. And, and he's critical and he doesn't do too much to actually call out the police in his first, in his first term. And he, and he does so, and this is where activism is important, is that you have groups of activists, in particular the Coalition Against Police Abuse, which forms in 1976, and it's a multiracial group of activists um, that are coming together and saying, if we all join along common lines of our resistance to discriminatory or racist policing, we can have a greater influence. And so they raise a lot of um, pressure on Bradley and other politicians after moments of police killings of Black and Latino um, residents and some white residents as well. Um, and so like in 1977, um, there's a white man who's killed. His name is Ron Burkholder. And these activists um, organize and put pressure on the police department in Bradley to take a stand um, to change LAPD policy. Um, but the big one is in 1979 when a, a woman by the name of Eula May Love is gunned down by two police officers in her front yard. And she's a 39-year-old African-American woman. Um, and there's an outpouring of protest from both activists, but just community members in the African-American neighborhoods, especially ministers. And it's really the first time that forces Bradley um, in his time as mayor, because before that he was saying we need to rein in the police and we need to kind of make sure the police aren't being discriminatory. But it's the first time he comes, he really takes a strong stand and says, we are going to investigate this killing of Eula Love. We're going. I'm, I demand, you know, that the police really um, be accountable for this. And it leads to a whole. Um, and he he asks, excuse me, he asked the uh, board of police commissioners to investigate this killing, which leads to a four part report that goes into vast detail on all the the missteps the officers took. And how the, and and then proposals to change training of use of force and a whole range of um, other proposals around again human relations training, um, but it's the activism there around continued police abuse that forces I argue Bradley to start taking an even greater stand against the police in the late seventies, um, even because he within the context that he had actually. I argue, empowered the police in some ways at the same time. And so the activism becomes this back and forth with um, the pro-police um, converging interests in the, in the city. So before we talk a little bit about the 80s, um, another area where your book talks about some of this kind of back and forth or some of the reforms, but that also continue to increase power um, police power in, in new realms is in the juvenile system. I was wondering if you might kind of pick out a, a little bit of that thread to highlight um, for listeners as well, especially because I think in that area, we can see some um, issues that continue to be at the forefront of these kinds of questions today. Yeah, and the youth policing um that I'll talk about is also the precursor to probably what we'll talk about in the 1980s when the war on drugs and with the war on gangs in particular, because Bradley's elected in 1973, as I mentioned, and it's actually in that year, there's this rising concern um, about 
what they call, you know, juvenile delinquency or youth violence in the city. They're not talking about it quite in the same way as we think of like in the 80s with, you know, uh, this kind of gang warfare, but they're concerned with what they see, what or what uh, meaning politicians concerned with youth violence in the city. Um, and particularly in schools, they're calling like schools are being described as like forts and that there's, you know, these kind of youth, you know, what they, their words, thugs, sort of in schools. And so Bradley comes into office and one of his campaign pledges is to address the rising youth violence. And so what I argue here is that by saying like, we're going to address youth violence, we're going to bring safety into schools, what starts to happen is the school authorities start to say, we'll allow the police to come onto campus. We will, the, the LA, the Los Angeles Unified School District also said, we're going to hire, start hiring more of our own police officers ourselves. And Bradley is organizing, um, a, he's saying, we need to have a more robust juvenile justice system as well to deal with youth crime. And so he's, there's a lot of grants that are being made to, to address juvenile, the juvenile justice system. And so what starts to happen is you get the growth of policing in schools in the 1970s um, in response to this fear of youth crime. Um, and so the police expand their authority to address youth violence, what, they, what they're calling youth violence in schools. Previously, those things would have been seen as just disciplinary problems that would have been handled by teachers or administrators. But in this moment, teachers and administrators are giving up that authority and the police are taking it over in schools. And so, in, for example, what starts to happen is you have the LAPD saying, we're going to put undercover officers in the schools um, to, to bust drug dealers. And so they bust all these young youth, what they call drug dealers. And so there's a growth of arrests around drugs and um, youth violence in schools there. And this is happening in a kind of racially discriminatory manner, um, differently in white schools versus black schools. Um, this is also where the LAPD's uh, community resources against street hoodlums or crash units form in the early 1970s, 73, 74, where they're forming these, what become the anti-gang units is that they say, well, we have to deal with youth violence on the streets, so we're going to develop new units to address that problem. And so they create the crash units, you know, by and large in conjunction with these political concerns that youth violence is a problem. And so then they start to develop new techniques to track young, predominantly black and brown men oftentimes. And so, and they create these file card systems in the early, in the mid 1970s, where they um, record the names and the uh, descriptions and appearances of youth they come into contact who they suspect of being gang members. Um, and they have real broad latitudes of how they describe gang members. Um, for example, like their guidelines say things like, black gang members like to wear black t-shirts. And so in these kind of files and they, so they then use this overly broad um, categorization to really criminalize youth in new ways. And part of the point there is that the police are doing this, but they're also doing this in the context of 
politicians, Tom Bradley and other city council members who are saying, and school administrators who are saying, we've got to deal with growing youth crime. And so then the police take on this new authority, and whether that's in schools themselves or in the, on the streets around schools with these crash units, um, is that they're then using um, the juvenile justice system to expand um, their discretion to police in the city. So as they get these new types of power and um, uh, new types of discretion, we still have constant activism pushing back or reforming or trying to mold police power and police relationships. Yet the police are also, I mean, one thing your book does, I think, really well is talk about the police as political actors in some ways, um, as you say up front. And I want to talk a little bit about sources a little bit later, but, you know, you don't necessarily have the sources to, to, of internal police records in a lot of ways, but the police become this kind of political force to a certain extent. Um, so could you talk a little bit about how the police are going about um, responding to activists and, and including the ways in which they are instituting a system of surveillance of activists as well? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And when I get a fair amount about the police are responding to the pressures from activists in ways that I hope my book shows, and I think, and I'm pretty, and the argument I make is that the police are really um, these partisan entities that are really strategic in how they are wanting, constantly wanting to maintain authority and to expand it, and so they respond to anti-police activism by labeling it largely as criminal or labeling it as a subversive threat and that that it needs to be in this in, in many cases surveilled and watched over and so the LAPD has its own intelligence division called the Public Disorder Intelligence Division or the PDID and what they start to do is say well these groups are and they're they're surveilling pretty much every kind of political oriented group in the city, both on the conservative right, as well as on the kind of uh, the, the, the left. And so, and in particular, anti-police abuse groups, they're surveilling in particular, they're really concerned with. And so the police start to use the framing. And, and this is what I, when I argue in the book is about the police actually are really active participants in constructing um, what the threat is to the city, because they're the ones saying like, well, now we have a, a youth crime crisis, or now we have a growing subversive threat. Um, and they're framing then anti-police abuse activists, in particular, the coalition against police abuse, as a threat to the city. Um, and so they then engage in infiltration, as well as surveillance of those groups um, in the 1970s, where from the from the very beginning of Kappa's organization, they had officers, intelligence officers, at some of the first meetings that the Coalition Against Police Abuse had, and they were recording what was happening at those meetings. And within a matter of months, the intelligence reports are saying back to the back to LAPD headquarters. These um, informants are saying. Kappa has grown immensely. 
and it's one of the most dangerous organizations to the city. And so they then use that to try to frame anti-police activism as a threat in what I argue as is a, is a means to then say, this requires us to now have greater authority in the city. Um, the thing that ends up happening with the Public Disorder Intelligence Division is that activists find out about all this infiltration of anti-police abuse groups, largely, um, and they're all peaceful, nonviolent protest um, organizations. They find out about the political infiltration of the city council when there were hearings about police abuse. So especially around the Eula Love case, when there were hearings about the officers and um, the LAPD practices that led to that killing, they had um, LAPD intelligence officers uh, recording parts of those hearings. And as activists hear about this, and this is one of the kind of biggest moments of triumphs in the late 70s and early 80s, is they bring a lawsuit against the police for what was really just politically motivated spying. And they're successful at uncovering this broad web of spying and infiltration by the LAPD that then actually leads to the dismantling of that intelligence division. Um, in the early 1980s um, due to a lawsuit. And so it's this interesting moment again where the police are actively trying to expand their ability to, to maintain information and surveillance on those groups they perceive as threatening. And at the same time, activists are aware, become aware and push back at what is, was really unconstitutional policing at that moment. And so it's a moment of triumph for activists and the activist community, especially the ACLU, um, the Coalition Against Police Abuse, um, and a number of others, where they're actually able to dismantle this intelligence division. Now, it gets reformed later um, in another in a in a new iteration. So the police come back and say, "Well, we'll we still need intelligence gathering, but we'll reform it into a new into a new um, office within within the department." Um, and so there's always this kind of uh, dialectic going back and forth between the two. But it is a moment of, of success that's also indicative of the way the police are trying to always respond to, to, to groups that are saying we want to take and restrict police power in the city. So as we move forward, could you talk a little bit about kind of what is uh, the reformed version of policing in the 1980s? And you you talk about a few different types of things in the 1980s. Um, you talk some about the um, global migration and kind of changing economic situation in the city and how that uh, feeds into um, policing of immigrants, um, but then you also, of course, talk about the drug war as well. And so, I was wondering if you might talk a bit about the types of policing and the changes that then set up the conditions that will lead to another outburst of violence and conflict in 1992 in in the LA riots that become sort of this the bookend, the other bookend of your book. Yeah, so what is happening in LA in the late 70s, early 80s um, is the city goes through a kind of economic restructuring. Um, it, the city loses tens of thousands of manufacturing jobs. 
so there's rising unemployment, in particular in the African-American community in the early 1980s. The city is also, and as part of that economic restructuring, there's a rise of a service sector. So low wage work um, in service industries that's coming to replace what were at, at one point higher wage manufacturing jobs. And so the city is, but you're getting growing unemployment, but also the jobs that are coming in um, are largely low wage and um, not and and not as well paid. And so there's a restructured economy that is also happening within the context of growing demographic changes. As you get the disruptions in South and Central America and Latin America is largely coming out of a Cold War context as you have um, interventions by the United States in part in El Salvador and Nicaragua is that you have a lot of refugees who are fleeing to the United States and they come to places like Los Angeles. Um, and these immigrant and refugee populations become new targets of police. And so there had been long, a long history of the police and the immigrant community in Los Angeles back to the early 20th century. But what's happening in the 80s is the police are saying, we have a problem, is that we want these new immigrants and refugees, and they're not necessarily using refugees, but that's a different kind of a different a side part of the story. But they're saying we we need immigrants to report crime and to trust the police because we have this growing population. And if they're not willing to trust the police, it's going to lead to a rise of crime. And so they're saying, and so they say, and this is under Chief Daryl Gates. And they say, well, so what we're going to do essentially is pass what they called Special Order 40 and say that the police will not investigate immigration violations, will only investigate kind of criminal violations. Um, and we won't ask about immigration status um, in certain instances. And so they're starting to say, we won't enforce immigration law because we want immigrant communities to to report to the police. But at the same time, what's interesting is that they start to see the behaviors and activities of especially El Salvadoran and Mexican immigrants who are doing like street and day labor because they don't have any many other employment opportunities where they're selling um food and other things on the streets as a kind of new threat as as a crime and so they so they say on the one hand we're not going to investigate um and not going to enforce immigration violations but we will start to then criminalize street vending and other behaviors that are you know quote unquote happen to be associated with immigrants and so on the one hand, the police are trying to say, we're going to restrain our discretion here to police um, these immigrant communities. But at the same time, they have a kind of a double move where then they say, but we're going to enforce enforce these new city ordinances against street vending. And so then they start to target immigrant communities in new ways in the 1980s. And this would lead, um, which we'll get to with 92, is a, a, a real kind of targeting of immigrants during the 92 uprising, um, when a lot of undocumented immigrants get arrested um, 
and um, and some of them deported. And so there's this moment in the 80s where actually the foundations for targeting of behaviors and activities, especially around employment um, of immigrants, starts to starts to develop. Um, at the same time that this is happening, um, you have the growth of concerns around a rise in drug use, um, especially with the introduction of crack cocaine in the city in the early 1980s, as well as what is perceived as a connection between that rising drug trade and gang violence, um, especially in the African-American and Latino and Latinx communities. Um, and I use Latinx at this moment because the demographics of the of the population have shifted from one that was primarily Mexican-American in the 60s to now what is really a, a, a broader Latinx um, demographic with immigration from El Salvador, Nicaragua, and others. And so there's this connection that starts to grow between that the police say, well, the drug trade is driven by gangs and gangs are violent. And so what we need is a new form of policing to address this gang drug trade um, activity that is ruining the city. And they're supported by politicians in this, um, such as Tom Bradley and others we've talked about, um, to say we're going to crack down on this new form of of gang violence um, that's that's connected to the drug trade. And so they start to engage in widespread raids of in South Central, the African American community, to raid to, to crack down on drug dealing um, and to sort of what they say is to to raid um, and arrest gang members as well. And so they're start and they're starting to also use new types of technology um, in terms of weapons. And so they um, acquire things like this tank-like vehicle that they put a 14-foot battering ram on the front of, where they're able, where they use it to knock down um, the doors of supposed drug, um, drug houses and what they call rock houses. And so they're starting to perceive these threats and to use new types of militarized force. And so they expand into um, this, this militarization in a new way because they justify and they say, well, the drug trade is a violent one because it's controlled by gangs. Um, and that's not entirely true because there's evidence that um, from the police's own records that um, not all the drug trade was controlled by gangs, but the, the framing of it, both by the the police and the media was that oh, all of the drug trade in the city is this is controlled by gangs and therefore violent. So we need this new militarized authority. Um, along with that, they're engaging in new types of monitoring of of gang of supposed gang members. So they have these new databases where they start to input into computerized databases. Um, the individuals they that they arrest or they come across who they think are gang members. So this is the origins of um, what becomes Cal Gang later on. It's a statewide gang database for California, but some of these start in LA in the 1980s. Um, and so they're starting to surveil black and um, brown youth using these databases. They are also then engaging in mass arrest tactics where in 1988 and 1989, it's the kind of notorious... Operation Hammer, which is 
on weekends, the LAPD would flood, uh, largely in South Central in the black neighborhood, they would flood it with officers and rest, arrest or really um, and round up any youth they thought might be a gang member. And that could really be any African-American youth between the ages of 12 and 28. They you know, could all fit the gang member profile and they would then hold them at the LA Coliseum just south of USC for 24 hours. They oftentimes found no evidence of a crime and made no, made, made no um, charges against anyone, but they would enter them into these gang databases and then release them after 24 hours. And so it was a kind of early kind of, or it was a form of mass cr- criminalization of youth of color in the city. Um, and the connection that's interesting there to the immigration story is they're also using those tactics to say, well, we're not going to police for immigration status, but many immigrants coming in are part of this gang violence. And so they're able to then frame immigration around gang violence as a means to kind of arrest um, and round up oftentimes undocumented immigrants at the same time um, that they're policing in black neighborhoods around the drug trade. And so you get this this growth of police militarization and really the policing of kind of the everyday life of um, African-American and Mexican-American residents, or excuse me, and Latinx residents in the city during the 1980s that really creates kind of growing um, tension um, in the city because these communities are saying, yes, we want to be safe and we need to deal with crime and violence in our communities, but it doesn't mean that we need new military tactics and weapons tried out on us. It doesn't mean that we want discriminatory and racist policing. And so they're calling for the, like a change to that sort of policing saying that is we're being treated unequally and we're also not getting the protection we need because our communities are just being treated as criminal. So this type of policing and this situation sets up what happens in 1992. Could you just briefly talk about what kind of effects that has on on policing and policing tactics? Yeah. And so so the argument I make in the book is that we can't understand what happens in 1992 without this kind of three-decade prior kind of tent, uh tension between communities of color and the police in the city and that the war on drugs, war on gangs um, is, is really formative to the context of 1992 when, as many listeners will know, it comes the year after LAPD officers um, beat Rodney King um, and then the officers are acquitted in 92 and the city erupts again in moment in this kind of episode of violent protest. And the police respond with kind of overwhelming force once again. They, they cooperate with the INS. They cooperate with kind of federal law enforcement during this moment. So there's a kind of a real uh, growth of um, communication between law enforcement agencies in this moment. But coming out of it, as, as you're asking, is that it's really a wake-up call for the city once again. Um, and it's a moment, 92, that leads to at least, well, the Rodney King beating in 91 and the unrest in 92, the rebellion, 
as some people call it, leads really to this moment when Tom Bradley and others, Tom Bradley's still in office. <laughs> um, he, he doesn't run again after this, so he's, he, he leaves office. And it leads to a moment when, when, when residents, more broadly than just the communities of color, start to say, like, we need to really fundamentally rein in the police. Um, because you get the, the, there's a there's a series of commissions that investigate the Rodney King beating and the '92 uprising, and they say and these commissions find they say there's really a culture within the LAPD um, that leads to an us versus them mentality. The the LAPD has basically developed this um, relationship to the communities it's policed, where they see themselves in opposition to those communities and they don't see them as working you know for the communities and so and this is coming out of uh, the Christopher Commission and the Webster Commission which were the two commissions that I'm talking about um, and so these studies um, call for change the what starts to happen is there's a referendum that's put on the ballot for 1992 in June um, which is called Charter Amendment F, which passes overwhelmingly. And that charter amendment um, changes the city charter. And so what they say is the police, and the fundamental thing it does is says that the police chief can no longer have life tenure. The police chief can be appointed for two five-year terms, but after the first five-year term, they have to be reappointed by the board of police commissioners. Um, and they then say like, we are. We, there's also needs to be community-oriented policing projects. And so we really need to kind of change the police from what some people described as a warrior mentality. And so 92, and, and I argue that those changes are ones that activists had been essentially sowing the ground for for decades and that they created the conditions within which those types of reforms um, could take place. Um, and so 92 becomes a moment when there is this kind of structural change to the city charter and what powers the police have, especially the police chief. Um, and they start to enter into new forms of community-oriented policing programs. Um, and those, by and large, initially, <laughs> I argue, were meant to be a, a change in policing, but they didn't always end up that way. And so the real um, case study there that I use is Operation Weed and Seed. Um, and that's a federal program that was started by George H.W. Bush um, nationwide. They had Operation Weed and Seed. And it comes in, the LAPD and uh, LA politicians want to use that to say, well, we're going to have community policing. And part of that is going to be Operation Weed and Seed, which what they would say is what we're going to do is weed the area of criminals, take them out, but then seed it by providing um, resources for the community and providing, having um, community relations meetings where officers would work with the community on how it should be policed. Um, and so I argue that that really ends up actually criminalizing, uh, linking, excuse me, police um, and criminal justice by saying, like, we're going to come in and weed the area of the criminals, which were oftentimes who they're seeing as largely it's black and brown youth, and saying, linking that kind of hard power of the police to saying, well, but at the same time, we're really going to invest in social service 
kind of policing and be more invested in the community. And so I argue kind of there that on the one hand, you get these really important reforms to the city charter on the one hand, but on the other hand, the ways that community policing gets implemented in the city really links policing and criminal justice to the kind of social welfare side of policing when it comes to community policing. And so the that the the police power never actually gets divorced from that. It's still centrally involved, even though they're saying we're doing something slightly different. So throughout your book at this moment as well, there's this push-pull, as we've been talking about, um, between activists and the police. And there are moments where a number of features of policing do get reformed, but police power is not necessarily decreasing or fundamental relationships are not necessarily changing in in, um, in, in the types of ways or in the size of ways that many activists are hoping. And I'm wondering if you might talk a little bit about what this means for thinking about our present moment. As you mentioned when you started, um, that you started your research in the context of Black Lives Matter, which is certainly a movement that's still around. And we are also in a moment when there's lots of maybe fits and starts, but nonetheless, a few signs of the possibility and, and um, interest in possible criminal justice reform in a variety of different ways. And I'm wondering kind of what you think this history might tell us about um, the possibilities for that reform. Yeah, that's a great question, um, and I, I mean, one thing that I hope I th- that I hope the book does, and that I think the argument I try to make is that in some ways, this history of activism in the book is one of the ba- is really shows us the kind of long legacies um, and the historical um, legacies of our current activism around policing is that. You police anti-police activism in our present didn't come from nowhere, um, especially you know if we look at particular cities. So a lot of the activists who are in LA recognize that history. Um, you know, so there's a number of groups I cite in the book at the end, like the Youth Justice Coalition and the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition, which is um, a, a coalition of groups that are that are really recognizing this longer history of of, of activism and police power. Um, the thing that I think the lessons that this history shows is that I mean that activism is crucially important to um, demanding and trying to hold the police accountable because if not for activists, the police would essentially be able to act with an even greater free kind of free hand in the city that the activists were the ones throughout this period that were saying, we are going to try to hold the police accountable and expose um, the the episodes of police abuse and, um, and and oftentimes killings that the police don't always want exposed. And so, and that's I think a lesson that we see today with Black Lives Matters and other, especially around social media and cell phones and all that, that we see activism continuing along that path of like now we have an ability to kind of expose these these incidents, but. I think the other lessons that this ref- these activists the the history that I um, recount in this book show is that reform to the police is one that is not going to happen all at once. 
um, that it's a part of a kind of longer process that sometimes happens in fits and starts, that you have moments of bigger triumph, um, but that it, it's not one that we're gonna, that's going to change overnight and that the activists I show in this book struggle for decades um, to push back at the, poli- at the police. And, and I think that's something that we see today as well. Um, and then the kind of bigger point, which perhaps is the most difficult one, is what the activism here shows, and the activists that I write about are, are, are aware of this. Um, and I think you see that with some of the criticism today from activists, activists who say, like, well, certain reforms, just like putting body cameras on police, aren't going to fundamentally change the fact that we empower the police to do certain things. Um, and so I think the history shows that that really, if we want fundamental changes to the police, that that's a much more, that's a much bigger change that we have to make in society in the United States to think about what do we actually think and empower the police to do in our society? And what authority do we give them? Um, Because those are much, that's a much bigger kind of fundamental question that the history I show is really what activists are pushing at but that is a really hard one um, to, to, to successfully um, accomplish. Um, and that's why I think Bradley, and you, we saw this with like, you know, Barack Obama as well. You know, there's criticism of, you know, with um, Ferguson in Baltimore and others is, well, yes, we can call for more body cameras and more policing, but we really need to have a discussion of what do we actually think the police should be doing in society? And what power do we give them? What authority do we give them to enforce um, what we call crime or, or order? Um, and so those are that's a much bigger question that I think my, my book sh- can shed light on, is that we really do have to have those discussions if we think we want to move forward on this question of police reform. Mm-hmm. Those are incredibly important questions and, and ones that I hope our listeners will be thinking about. Um, I don't want to abruptly change topics here, but I did want to ask you a little bit about doing research on the police, which is a sort of, at least among historians who do this kind of thing, an infamously difficult task. Uh, you, for your book, use a lot of records that you mentioned at the beginning from activists. And you mentioned in the book that you tried to get more records um, about the LAPD, but that there was resistance to that. And I was wondering if you might just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. And so that's the kind of doing police history and archival, you know, and doing trying to do archival work around policing is, as many historians would say who study this, it is really difficult, as you said. Um, and I was really lucky in a lot of ways in the sense that the, the, the activists that I followed through the archive collected information on the police um, as they were engaging in protest and other sorts of forms and so um, or in, in their other activities and so they actually collected so while I don't have LAPD official records from the department oftentimes these activist groups collected official LAPD documents and archived them as part of their archive as well which was so fascinating is because I could almost piece together bits and pieces of an official LAPD archive, but through activists, alongside that I was doing the work of finding the records of the activists in their organizations as well, is that they were really concerned with tracking um, 
the records of the police because they knew at the time in the 70s and 80s that it was really important to collect police records at that time. And so I was so that archival journey was really informative to thinking about how could I get at the police and really t- write a history of the police and anti-police abuse activism without having having records directly from the department. And so activist groups were crucial. Um, the other avenue that it took me, and I think my archival journey, I would argue, also su- is suggestive of my argument that the police had become, in, in, in some ways, more involved in a variety of areas of life in the city um, because... I found records of police, you know, when I went to the school board records. I found records of the police when I went to city council office records. I found records of the police when I went to the mayor's papers. And so as I started to do a a much broader archival journey, what I found was the webs of police records and archives became part of the archival record of a whole range of activists, politicians, um, you know, the school board and another and other um, institutions in the city that allowed me to piece together that story um, in a really interesting way. And so that archival journey was one that took a lot of work. Um, and but it required also thinking about how to get at the police without actually being able to go to the police department and say, can you give me all your records? Because as you mentioned, I did that and I filed a public records request, um, which while I was finishing was unsuccessful, that they'd never released any of that information. Um, there have been some subsequent lawsuits that have released some of that historical inform- um, those historical records. And so this, the, the kind of source piece was really, I thought might be an obstacle, but it was one that I um, was able to follow these strands through the city in a way, like through the archives, I was able to follow strands of policing through the city. Um, and so that journey kind of parallels, I think, part of the argument about police power that I'm making in the book. Well, it's a wonderful book. And thank you so much for spending time talking to me about it. Um, before we go, can I ask what you plan to work on next? And so I'm working, yeah. And thank you again for the, this was a great conversation for your um, discussion of the book. Um, I am currently working on a project that, that builds a little bit out of this book on the D.A.R.E. program and the war on drugs. And so what I'm interested in starting to investigate now is thinking about anti-drug education and anti-drug kind of prevention in the 1980s and 1990s as kind of the, what, I, what I'm more or less referring to as the kind of soft side of the war on drugs is that we've heard, is that we have histories growing, more histories of like the policing side and the punitive um, punishment side. But there's a whole other side of the drug war, which has to do with um, police in schools, with anti-drug education, in particular DARE. And so I'm I'm starting a project on that and doing some writing on that. I'm also interested in um, starting a project on how police departments communicate with each other throughout the kind of post-World War II era, in particular, the International Association of the Chiefs of Police, and thinking about your kind of original question about why Los Angeles is actually thinking about how police really shared information across the country. And so one of the other kind of sub-research project that I'm kind of starting right now is to think about 
the, the International Association of the Chiefs of Police and how these departments were actually sharing ideas across, um, across different regions um, in the post-World War II period. Well, those uh, both sound great. I look forward to reading them. Thank you.